Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to the Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week I'm talking to Michelle Harper, the emergency room physician turned author whose memoir, The Beauty in Breaking, explores the link between trauma and healing. After a childhood spent with a violent father, Michelle feels called to address the multiple traumas in her adult life, From the individual trauma of physical injury and illness to the societal trauma of racism, which impacts her career and the lives of many of her patients. It was a privilege to speak to Michelle about her life and work. This is a woman with an incredible sense of mission, but one that's informed by personal suffering and a keen sense of empathy. I know you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Michelle, welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I am so glad to have you here. I've been reading The Beauty in Breaking again, just in the run up to talking to you, because I love to reread people's books so that I get a sense of your voice before I start talking. And it is such a fascinating account of, of actually what it's like to be an emergency room doctor Does all this stuff feel normal to you or do you still realise what an exceptional job you do? Uh, No, it just feels 
like a day at the job, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's very special. I, I feel grateful um, to be doing the work. It's interesting because people will ask, well, what's the strangest thing you've seen? Nothing feels strange anymore. So I never know how to yeah. answer that. <laughs> you must be just ready for anything. But yeah. I mean, it seemed to me reading your words that you have a kind of mental toolkit that makes you ready for anything almost. Is there like a process you go through when somebody arrives in, you know, on a bed in front of you? Have you got like a checklist? There is a checklist for that. But to be honest, my preparation for going into the job starts before I get there. It actually, it starts as I'm getting dressed and Mm. I have a long commute currently. So on my drive into work, I always listen to um, a segment of one of Eckhart Tolle's audiobooks. Wow. To get in the frame of reference, just spiritually, emotionally, my grounding process before I get there. And then that's that's really when the process starts for the workday. So you're almost like an athlete kind of uh, getting into the zone before you yeah. go there. You must have to. Sure. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. So <laughs> you come to uh, medicine with a real sense of mission, I think, that comes from your childhood. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, about what made you so strongly move towards such a challenging career? I feel that I was groomed to go into emergency medicine because (laughs) as I discuss in my memoir, it was difficult growing up in Mm. the household that I did. It was uh, because my father was a batterer. So there was violence all the time. Mm. And so at any given moment, I just had a snapshot. Like, was, was this attack really going to happen? Was he going to assault my mother or someone else? Is there the potential for a life threat? Is it likely to blow over? Or might it not happen now and we'll be okay and we just need to stay vigilant? And so I I use that same skill set in the emergency department where I see a patient or someone's being carried or rolled into the ER. And I go through, you know, when you mentioned that checklist and toolkit, I go through that immediately just on, on first presentation, on first glance of the patient. Yes, there's a glance. There's there's also like an energy exchange, a sense you get. And so I go through that and then I enter the room, speak to the patient. Mm. And and that preparation started when I was very young. So Yeah. So that's how I felt I was groomed and then um I feel that because I w- I went through those experiences, I had firsthand knowledge that bodies can be hurt. Mm-hmm. And they can be hurt in in cruel ways, in ways that feel cruel by people closest to us. One of the experiences that stayed with me all of these years, and there are many, but one that was particularly salient that I spoke about in the book was when my brother was intervening to uh, protect my mother. My brother restrained my father on the ground, and then my father bit his hand Mm. and bit it hard to purposely cause an injury. And I remember looking at my brother's thumb that was bloodied and the tissue broken and crushed and thinking there's no safety here. If this is what this person can do, who's supposed to be our caretaker, we are not safe. So I have to find a way to protect myself and the people I care about. And that instilled for me from the very beginning that I wanted to do that for myself 
and for my family. And I also wanted to be part of that structure for other people, for other people looking for healing in life. And I got the sense reading your book that you almost have an extra instinct for danger lurking, maybe because you're, you know, you're more carefully looking for it, you're more alert to it. But also you seem to be able to recognize other people who have been in danger very, very effectively. Yeah. And I feel, yes, again, because I had to be attuned to that. But I feel that we all can do that as humans Mm -hmm. if we're still and we're open and we listen. Sure, we don't always get it right, but there is the capacity to recognize that somehow. And even when, you know, I, I feel that we can pick that up from people when they don't have the capacity to speak even. Like mm, children, particularly, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the toddler, yeah. I was, um, who was brought in, and you know, the thinking was, oh, that the child had a febrile seizure. You know, it happens. Little kids sometimes when they have some yeah. minor illness, cold, they'll have a fever, and then they'll get a seizure, and they might be a little stuporous for a little while, and and it, it's not a big deal for the most part in most cases, but this little girl wasn't waking up and on physical exam there were no signs of injury or or serious infection really and we started our routine evaluations um, because she wasn't waking up screening labs and x-ray and and I ordered an extra test I I couldn't help myself from doing I don't know why I didn't unclick the button <laughs> that instinct right like her liver function yeah. but I just left it And then I had to transfer her out because we don't admit pediatric patients and she would need ongoing monitoring. Mm. And as she's being rolled out the door, her labs are coming back all normal, but the liver function test is abnormal and it's very high, the lab results. And then I get a call from the radiologist as she's being bundled and taken out to be taken to the next hospital that there's no pneumonia in her lungs, but she has multiple rib fractures in different stages of healing. Mm. And that's the red alert, isn't it? That, that there's multiple fractures and they've, they've happened at different times. Yes. This isn't one fall that's been missed accidentally, you know. Right. Mm. This is, you know, over a period of time. And so I feel like this child has been abused. And I was concerned that her liver tests were abnormal because her liver was bruised because she'd been beaten. I did follow up on the case and that is exactly what happened. She had bruising in her brain, hemorrhages behind her eye. And that's why this wasn't a febrile seizure at all. She wasn't waking up because she was battered. And although it, that day in the emergency room, she, she couldn't speak to me. She looked fine. I felt something about her that wanted to be heard and discovered mm-hmm. and, and assisted. And, and that's just one example. And I feel that it's common with people. And if if we're open, we we can receive those messages. It must be incredibly hard to deal with children in particular. And you talk a lot about your coping strategies, I think. Is is the kind of listening to the recording on the way to work part of the strategy to cope with that? Or is that just getting into the room? (laughs) I think it's maybe maybe both. (laughs) But um, (laughs) it's that I, I do feel it's... I use the word centering and grounding a lot, which is Mm. similar to coping. I feel like my experience of it is to maintain like ongoing 
health, spiritual, mental, emotional health for myself. Because you're right, it can be so draining. It can feel defeating because, you know, there's only so much I can do for one person in the emergency department at a time. But the pain of their experience Mm. can stay with me. So that's a way, I suppose, of unsticking it so it doesn't because I have to be functional. I have to be present for each person and each experience each day. Mm-hmm. So tell us what you do to to center and ground. What are your techniques? Because I think if they work for you, they must work for an awful lot. <laughs> Much less big concerns, you know. <laughs> yeah. I can get tipped over by a bad school run, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've been considering this a lot, especially recently, maybe it's because of the effects of the pandemic and, and all the suffering mm. brought on people now. And then just the time and the fact that businesses are closed down, you know, some of the things that I would enjoy doing, like going to coffee shops and reading, going to museums, which which are like my temple, mm. those strategies have been taken away. So I'm increasingly left to my own devices, which I consider now a great opportunity, actually. So I am doing more meditation Mm. and especially walking meditation, which I did before, but I'm doing it more. And the physical practice of yoga. And I've, I've been thinking about that a lot as well, just the benefits of this moving meditation really, and how it opens up so much space and tightness an energetic release. I mean, I, I am so grateful for the practice of yoga. I mean, I could, I could go on and on about. It. We could have a whole different discussion about, about <laughs> yoga and how, like, physical practices release trauma that is in the body. Yeah. So those are those are my main practices now. <laughs> yeah, I I think actually this has been such an interesting year for us all to learn how to fall back on our own resources you know it, it seems particularly cruel but when there's so much fear circulating mm-hmm. we're all denied those places we'd normally physically go to to soothe ourselves as you say like museums and galleries mm-hmm. just going for a coffee and reading a book outside your house you know that that seems like a distant memory to me right in you know we're in tier three in the UK which is the highest tier and like nothing is open and uh but actually, it's so important to have those personal resources that let you cope anywhere, like mm-hmm. on a shoestring with no money, no time, no right. no resources. And, you know, yoga is one of them. And walking for me is, is always a massive one. And, and uh, you know, there's something, you know, we talk about grounding, but physically grounding about them. You are making contact with your sense of gravity almost that... Yes re-anchors you into the world right I agree and and I suppose um but we all do this in our ways and I have to do this in the ER being present with what is and Mm. coming up with a plan and a strategy in the moment because I don't know what's going to come through the door whether it's um someone who's been shot or speaking to a 16 year old about her anxiety and depression and then interviewing her alone after I've asked her mother to leave the room. And then she tells me that actually it all started when my aunt sexually abused me. And I told my mother and she wouldn't believe me. Can you speak to my mother with me? 
because maybe she'll believe you. Maybe she'll finally hear me. You know, no matter what it is, I have to be ready for it. And I, I think that mm-hmm. this pandemic, again, all all the suffering, the the loss of life, the loss of livelihood, and yet somehow we still have to find a way forward and finding that grounding in uncertain times. Mm -hmm. And when everything else falls away, whether it's, again, like you were saying, the capacity to go out and spend time with our friends, the the capacity to be able to afford trips or other excursions, when our health is perhaps tenuous, we still have to find a way forward. We still have to find that rooting within ourselves. So this this time for me, I, I actually consider it very precious and a gift because things will improve again, but I have to be okay no matter what, because life is uncertain. Yeah. And do you do you find that you learn a lot from your patients? I mean, I get the sense that some of them don't, you know, don't manage very well at all with difficult diagnosis, but some of them are utterly inspiring in the way that they respond to these, you know, life-threatening diagnoses and huge physical challenges. Is that a useful teacher or does it feel quite separate? I have to tell you, for me, I, I find lessons in every experience. Mm. So I learn, I learn from them all inside and outside of the ER. It's, it, it's interesting the the fluctuations in in time because it's very different now. The patients I'm seeing are having an extremely difficult time coping yeah. because of the loss of everything else. But yes, when when I see a patient who can find such equanimity during what I feel like would be almost an impossible circumstances, so much pain, you know, like. An example of a man I, older, but not that old, around 60 years old, who mm. I have to tell him um, clearly that it looks like his cancer has come back. Right. He kind of had a sense of it because the provider before me, her shift was over, but the provider before me had said she saw lesions, spots all over his CAT scan. Mm-hmm. She didn't use the words but he already knew because he had had cancer before and went in remission, did fine. But I used the word cancer. I I felt it was important, important to be honest. So then he could make a decision how he wanted to handle it moving forward and follow up appointments, making his own plans and arrangements for his health. Mm. And he, he already knew. And there was such a grace about him. And he said, that he feels good in his body now. And he didn't know if it's such a, a deeply personal decision, if, if you're going to go for aggressive treatment or not. Mm. And he felt that it, it didn't really fit with his lifestyle. Like he was a vegan and he liked to eat healthy and exercise and spend time with his family. And he felt good doing that. And he didn't want yeah. to do an aggressive therapy where that might be taken away from him. That's a huge decision to make. Isn't right, it? It's a- huge. And so, yes, I was inspired by him. I mean, if he could have that kind of balance during that time, mm. th- then I felt certainly I could too. While to my knowledge, 
I wasn't ill. I didn't have a, a terminal diagnosis. So very inspiring for me. And I shared that story for, the, for that reason. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back with more from Michelle in a moment. But first, I want to let you know about my online course, Wintering for Writers, which is back online after a successful first run this summer. Wintering for Writers is designed to be a beautiful, reflective process for writers who are currently struggling, as so many are in this pandemic year. If you're feeling blocked or losing hope, it's packed with videos and thought-provoking texts to help you to rethink your practice, and there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on courses or follow the link in the show notes. And now back to Michelle Harper. How did you handle the case studies that you used in your book? That must have been a very challenging thing to, you know, I presume you kind of concealed identities, but that must have been really challenging to retain the heft of the story and the emotional weight while... Uh, you know, carefully concealing the people behind them. Yeah. I mean, yes. And I am bent over backwards with confidentiality, like Mm. changing names, certain cases that I thought would be particularly notable. There's two in particular. I changed locations. Now what I didn't realize, so, you know, I took care in, in those respects. I also didn't realize though, because my background is medical and like I was a psychology major, no surprise, anyone could have guessed it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why would you be drawn to that? (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Right. And I I was, but I don't have a writing background. So I thought once I finish the book, it'll come out in like six months. No, like this was a really long process. So I didn't, so I had the benefit of the passage of time also. So that helped a lot. And plus, as you know, like a memoir, it's um, highly curated. So I could pick the notable cases over time. I see thousands of patients. And this memoir, I wrote it maybe over six years, but it discusses aspects of my clinical life from medical school, even medical school right. to roughly four years ago, three years ago. Right. So that also helps with confidentiality because it's very, you know, it's yeah. difficult for people to pick themselves out of an interaction of 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's yeah, this kind of plausible deniability as well. Exactly. Um, <laughs> no, it wasn't you, it was someone else. Right. You know? <laughs> no. And I mean, has, you know, has anyone recognized you as a doctor from your book? You know, I have heard, I mean, I've heard from patients. I've ne- I haven't heard from any patient who contacted me and said, um, Oh my gosh, I read your book. Was that me? Like, was I Miss Honor? I haven't heard. Like, I haven't heard. Of course, I'm waiting to see if that happens. Although, I have to tell you the truth. I really, I I don't think it would be possible for it to happen. So, so that hasn't happened. But have I heard from patients who reached out and was like, I remember you. Like, I'm so happy for you. Or, like, Um, there was one particular patient from the VA who said, like, I miss you there. And, so I've heard oh, from it is. It's really nice. The one mistaken identity. I had a colleague who thought she had treated Miss Honor, um, and she contacted me. We we work in the ER together. We used to, and she said, "Oh my God, I treated her." And then she told me about the patient, and she told me her name also. 
And I said, mm-hmm. yeah, that, no, that wasn't her at all. <laughs> so, so that yeah, was the one yeah. mistaken identity I got. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So I would love to ask you, because racism comes up oh, yeah. in the book in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about the way that the police treat your black patients or that you know that they, they're often in the hospital because of some kind of mm-hmm. I don't know altercation I don't know how you describe it and there's often kind of police sitting outside but that also you know like you don't get missed out from that right there's a moment when you are passed over because of your race mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about what it's like to experience that right so as a black physician we experience racism from all sides, whether it's mm. from the patients, um, from the institutions, from whoever, like the police, are, are bringing in a patient, our colleagues. The right. case referencing the police, there were four white police officers brought in um, a black man under custody. And their allegation was he had swallowed drugs, and so they were bring him to the ER to get the drugs out. I mean, presumably it's part of their case somehow. Mm. So, and they wanted you to conspire in that with yes, them. yes, <laughs> mm-hmm. that that was the directive to us. Mm. And so, you know, I hear I, I hear the nurse at triage. I, I hear them telling the man he has to get undressed, he has to comply. Then my resident, um, who's a person I'm training. She hasn't graduated residency yet. So she's my trainee, goes over. I'm I'm praying to the goddess. She is going to diffuse the situation, although I knew that wasn't going to happen. But I have to give her a chance because I'm training her. Yeah. And she's she also is trying to compel him, not really trying, just say, this is what you will do. So I go over, I do my assessment of him, and he's competent. He's sober. He has no complaints. He doesn't want to be examined. He doesn't want to be in the emergency department, which is his right. That is the law. So I am about to discharge him and she calls what she feels would be a higher authority, the hospital ethics and legal department, to see if they could just override my order. Um, Yeah. I mean, she just didn't trust or believe you. No. No, she I was didn't. furious. <laughs> no. Angry no, she didn't. She she felt that, yeah, not only did this man not have personal sovereignty over his body, which is bad enough in like the biggest crime, but also that well, I mean that's the source of enormous trauma for so many people. Exactly. Actually, you know, right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then also that I don't have authority either. So that mm-hmm. both of us could could be compelled. So, and then the hospital legal and ethics tell her, they do reinforce to her that actually I am stating the law, that that's not only the professional ethical to do what I have said, but also it would be illegal to go against that. So then she says, okay, you know, essentially carry on. Um, I discharge him and he goes. And that was a, a good reminder because, you know, we're, we're speaking a lot about, well, I didn't know this at the time. I mean, I wrote that years ago. But, it, but the book has come out at a time where we're speaking sure. a lot about racism and speaking specifically about policing and violence against black and brown bodies and the lack of equity in policing. Mm-hmm. And that's true, but that is possible because it is baked in to our society because of the structural bigotry yeah. that we in medicine are part of. So we all need to address it, um, rethink it and do better. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes your 
the only person Mm -hmm. standing in the way of that. Like you're the person that has to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to let this happen. I mean, that must feel very vulnerable, but also like an impossible task. You know, it's such a, it's such a juggernaut, isn't it? All of this, it's just terrifying how pervasive it is. I guess like white girls like me are just realizing how pervasive it is. Right. We don't see it. And I, you know, I hope this year has been an awakening for loads of us. Mm-hmm. I doubt it's been as much of an awakening as we need it to be. Right. But I'd love to know your opinion on that. Um, I agree. And, you know, b- beyond, yes, it is um, it is scary to have to do that because it, it does not come without consequence, like the risk of being fired and, and not being yeah. promoted, um, the lack of opportunity. There's that. And it's also exhausting. It's just, God, yeah. it's exhausting to be fighting these battles on so many fronts and constantly. Now it's, it's a choice, just like the people who choose to not stand up. It's a choice to stand up, but because my mission is to serve progress, I don't, I I don't feel there is an alternative in that respect, but I will say, you know, hearing the discussion, feeling the momentum to discuss these issues is, um, refreshing and now we have to see if it's paired with meaningful sustainable action mm. and we're gonna have to see i uh, i am i am cautiously optimistic but we'll have to see human beings have have a tendency uh to get comfortable so we'll see <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're slow I, yeah I I get the sense though, because you just said I'm optimistic. I get the sense you are a profoundly optimistic person. You seem to find hope in so much when other people feel hopeless. Interesting. I don't know how to feel about that accusation. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, I suppose it's true in some ways, in a spiritual sense, right? Like I I'm not under the impression at all. That, for example, every patient I see will do well or what would feel well for them. No, I'm acutely aware Mm -hmm. that many patients will die and even some of them young um, and that they will suffer and that will be the end of their lives. I'm acutely aware that the little boy I treated who didn't flinch when we were putting in IVs, when I was examining his bruised head just sat there motionless on the stretcher. And then we didn't let his father back in the ER because there were problems between the parents. I'm acutely aware that that boy is in pain and that when he leaves the hospital, that pain will sadly continue. And one day, God willing, he'll have to figure out how to save himself. But maybe your optimism lies in the fact that you did. Right. That's the thing. Like, I believe that during the arc of this life, the arc of humanity, ultimately, there will be progress. So I suppose in that way, maybe that's where you're, you're getting the optimism. Yeah, it's there. I yeah. it. I'm sensing it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's I think that makes me optimistic too because yeah. you know if, if someone can see what you see and still have that glint of optimism but also right. you know like you're a, you're a person that runs towards 
the parts of life that other people run away from. Mm-hmm. And you still find hope and redemption in those moments. And I, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe yeah. you and, and take that forward. I do. <laughs> I do. I do. I do believe in the, in the potential, these, these choices, crossroads, mm. the other side, mm. the potential of coming, coming out on the other side, more resilient and deeper with each interaction. But to, you know, like you seem to trust your patients to sort themselves out beyond your help as well. You know, you, you know where to leave it. You know, it doesn't help to over involve yourself in their future life. Like they have to find that redemption on their own, really, for it to be real. Yes, I do believe that. That being said, in, in creating the potential for growth, I feel then that my responsibility is to address the structures that can hamper them so that human beings have equal opportunity to grow, equal opportunity Mm -hmm. so that they have. (laughs) Ideally, my dream in America is that everyone has free health care. Everyone has access to free and quality education as well to a living wage so that if we have the foundation there so that they can grow, then yes, the rest is up to you. And Michelle, I can't tell you, it's very hard to explain how as a British person Mm. with free access to whatever healthcare we need, (sighs) how unfathomable it is to imagine not just, I mean, right. not simply being able to walk in and get the treatment you need at any given moment. Yeah. I cannot get my head around it. I, I was, right. This is a terrible example, but I was watching an old episode of Malcolm in the Middle with my son last night. <laughs> and there's this whole plot line yeah. where um, Malcolm's parents go away and a shell falls on his head and he cuts his head open. And the and the kids between them wonder whether they should take him to ER because no one's got any money. And in the end, they have to call their school teacher to come and pay for the oh treatment. My God. And I was like, I, I had to unpick it for my son. I was like, I don't <sighs> think we can understand the gravity of this situation. Right. Because here, if you saw an injured child, you take them to A&E and somebody treats them. It doesn't, like nothing is relevant to that, you know. Right. It doesn't matter who they are. And I, God, I I just cannot get my head around what it must be like to fear not being able to get the basic medical treatment that you require. I'm not saying our system is perfect, by the way, because it's far from perfect, you know, but. Um, Well, you know, then you have a sense, because if yours is far from perfect, then uh, consider, (laughs) consider what ours is. And it's, um, it's debilitating. I mean, the lack of access to healthcare, even those who have healthcare, if it's not some kind of gold plan, like yeah. having what's considered inadequate healthcare, or the fact that it is typically so so tenuous because it is linked with one's job. Okay, well, we're in a global pandemic mm-hmm. with record unemployment. We have record numbers yeah. of uninsured people. It is a sin that any nation and such a wealthy nation would decide that health is a privilege and not a right. And that needs to change. And yeah. the debt that people get into as well. Yeah. For, you know, uh, you know, for having life-threatening illness. And if you recover from it, you are indebted right. for... Uh, I, Ever. I mean, honestly, if you get cancer in the UK, you get world-class treatment and mm-hmm. 
it doesn't cost you a penny. I know we've paid for it in our taxes, but I am delighted to do that for everybody else, you know, just so that no one endures that. Yeah. And that's, that's, Mm. that's how it should be. That's how it should be. So that's why, because I know it's possible because we've seen other nations do it again, here, enter my optimism. We're going to continue the fight. I feel like you could personally sort this out. I really do. <laughs> you know, the, the, it's not funny, actually. The tragic thing about it is this is not rocket science. So this has nothing to do with knowledge. This is this has to do with a will and the aims of this nation. And what do we care about? What do we stand for? And who are we? So it's a it's a spiritual. It's a it's a moral issue. Yeah. So final question. Do you think you'll always be in medicine? Can you ever see a time when you'd walk away from it? Hmm. Well, I'll say that I resonate more with being a healer than any one title. So for that reason, I don't know what form that healing will take as the years go Um, on. There are different ways to deliver that mission, aren't there? Right. So I love doing medicine. I love the direct patient care, just despite the many challenges to it, which is why also I'm an emergency room doctor, because I cannot imagine ever turning someone away from care. I wouldn't do it mm. because they, they don't mm. have money or they don't have insurance. Like in the emergency room, I have to see everyone. And that's the only yeah. way I would practice. So I love that part of it. But I also yeah. loved that I wrote this book. And the purpose of the book for me was to demonstrate our interconnectedness as beings and just giving some examples of how I've worked on my own healing and how that was important Mm -hmm. for me, of course, for my own sanity and wellness. But then also if I heal myself, then I can be part of a structure to help other people heal should they choose it. And if we do that, then we can uplift society. So just as the book I hope, serves that mission. I think there will be other ways for me to do that as well. And so um, I'm open and flexible and, and yeah. excited about that. Well, I'm excited too. Michelle Harper, thank you so much. It's been wonderful thank to talk you. to you. You too. And I'll put all of the links I can find to you in the show notes for people to pick up your book, The Beauty and Breaking, and to track you down online. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much. And that's all for this episode. My profound thanks to Michelle Harper for such an inspiring conversation. You can find out more about The Beauty and Breaking at michelleharper.com or buy it from all good bookstores. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with winter. Stay warm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? fresh 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.